no more need for allergy meds. Check this out, you guys. This is a review on histamine and immune from Catherine G. I've been trying to find a way to live without a constant need for allergy medications. This worked like a dream. I'm loving it and would recommend it to anyone struggling with allergies. We get so many reviews like this on our histamine and immune supplements at Heart and Soil Supplements. It's desiccated organs, including liver, but also things like thymus and kidney with DAO, diamine oxidase, that can definitely help with allergies from a lot of different perspectives. We also just released Mood, Memory, and Brain. I am super excited about getting more brain in my diet and helping you guys get more brain in your diets. If you heard the recent video that I did on the power of phosphatidylserine and sphingomyelin and sphingolipids and BDNF, uh, all derived from bovine cortex, from cow brains, desiccated cow brains, what we put in our mood memory and brain supplement along with liver and bone marrow. These compounds are powerful. Uh, specifically, phosphatidylserine has been studied in age-related cognitive decline and found to be improving, found to be helpful for that, and also in young individuals in stress resilience, et cetera, management of the adrenocorticotropic hormone type pathway. So check out mood memory and brain from Heart and Soil and check out histamine and immune if you have allergies. Those are the two I will highlight today. I'm so proud of what we do there with grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised animals, organs, desiccated, freeze-dried, carefully packaged, and shipped to you in glass containers. I should also note that there has never, ever been a recorded case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, encephalopathy in New Zealand. This is not an issue there, so you can safely consume bovine brain and get the benefits without worrying about that kind of thing. So at Heart and Soil, we help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. That is what we are all about. My guest on this week's podcast, as I say in this podcast, is perhaps the closest thing. He is perhaps the closest thing that I've had uh, on the podcast, Indiana Jones. Uh, maybe I'll have somebody else who, who rivals him in the Indiana Jones status, but uh, Dr. Bell Schindler has a PhD in archaeology. He co-starred in National Geographic's show, uh, The Great Human Race, which was actually kind of an interesting concept that you can find on YouTube uh, from four or five years ago. They went, he and his co-star, Cat, uh, went across the globe and National Geographic pitted them against the elements, different points in human evolution. But Bill has sort of parlayed his archaeology knowledge into travels around the world looking at indigenous cultures and recently wrote a book called Eat Like a Human. We had an amazing, really interesting conversation about how humans should eat, what an evolutionarily appropriate diet for humans actually consists of. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one, and you're going to see a lot of similarities in the way that Bill and I think. And I think we talk about some of our differences as well, but really interesting conversation with Bill. Uh, and you can find him at eatlikeahuman.com. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, a five-star review there goes a long way toward helping us spread this message. You guys are all part of my tribe. You are truth seekers. You are rememberers. And so I ask for your help in spreading this message of evolutionarily appropriate diets, radical health, challenging the norm, thinking outside the box, and helping many, many millions hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people benefit from what we know to be true, which is that eating meat, organs, and the least toxic plant foods results in radical health for so many of us. Why should so many continue to suffer if this knowledge is out there? That's what I'm doing with my podcast. 
and what we do at Heart and Soil. Please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts to help us spread the message as a thank you. I give away one signed copy of my book every month to somebody who leaves me a review there. This podcast is free and I feel very good about providing free information for you all. And the podcast sponsors make this possible. So I want to give a shout out to the sponsors of the podcast this week. These are White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They make some of the best grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat on the planet. They have beef and lamb. They have corn and soy-free chicken. Uh, Jenny and Will Harris are amazing individuals, and I love the farm there in Bluffton, Georgia, if you ever get a chance to go. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order at White Oak Pastures, but supporting White Oak Pastures will definitely improve the health of your family and is a vote for ecosystem sustainability in the way that our food is raised. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the folks at thecoldplunge.com. If you've seen my videos or my team's videos from Austin, we have one of these at the house. I love cold plunging. Um, and this is a, a really affordable and portable device that you can use in your home or outside of your home, preferentially, that has powerful cooling filtration and sanitation that gives you cold and clean water wherever you want it. In Austin, I often go to Ocean Lab and they have these outside of Ocean Lab. This is a great way to get a cold plunge in your house if you wanna upgrade beyond something like a horse trough and ice. Uh, it's safe for indoor or outdoor use and they've made installation real easy. You fill the plunge with a hose, you turn it on, you set your temperature down to 39 degrees and you are ready to chill yourself out. So you can go to thecoldplunge.com, use the code CARNIVOREMD for $111 off get some cold exposure in your life. This will definitely upgrade, I think, so many aspects of your daily existence. It's a very cool thing that I really like having at Heart and Soil HQ in Austin, Texas. So thanks to coldplunge.com. Uh, I love Blue Blocks. I love these guys, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. This is my friend, Andy Mant's company. Andy Mant came on the podcast a few months ago to tell us all about sunglasses and blue light. And when I am in blue light at night, I'm always going to wear blue blocking glasses. Like they make blue blocks. They make some of the finest ones I've ever seen to help protect my eyes, my circadian rhythm from these rays of light, these wavelengths of light that are really signaling daylight. And starting on the 19th of November, blue blocks has a Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale. They're going to have 25% off site-wide. Uh, the discount will be auto-applied on every order at checkout. There's no code needed. So I would go to blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com uh, between Friday of this week and Monday of the next week and get um, your blue blocking glasses. They have red light devices. They have sleep masks. Uh, they have all kinds of good stuff. They have red bulbs. And this would be a great time to go get it during the holiday season. And last but never least, I want to give you a thank out, a, a thank out, a shout out, and a thank you to the folks at Juve. You guys know the folks at Juve, J-O-O-V-V. If you're looking for a new Juve, I've got exciting news. You can go to juve.com and use the code Paul to get an exclusive discount on Juve's generation 3.0. Oh, devices. These are pretty cool. You guys know that I'm passionate about finding ways to live the most healthy and radical life possible. So I find these awesome folks. You've heard me talk about Juve before, and I like to use it for kind of helping my nighttime routine, for my skin, 
for performance and recovery and for sleep optimization. Juve is far and away the leading brand in the space. They pioneered the technology, being the first to isolate near uh, infrared and red light and make it accessible and affordable for in-home use. They have a new line of devices taking it to the next level. They're sleeker and lighter, all the same power you've come to expect. They have new features like recovery plus mode using pulsed near infrared light technology and ambient mode, lower intensity light to support sleep and circadian rhythms and counteract artificial blue light. So they're doing great work. They've also upgraded the setup to make mounting options in your home easy. So as I said, I have exciting news. Go check them, go check them out. Juve.com, J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul. Use the code Paul. You get an exclusive discount on Juve's generation 3.0 devices. All right. Without further ado, onto the podcast with my man, Bill Schindler. Enjoy this one, guys. Let me know what you think. Bill Schindler, thanks for coming on the podcast. Been a long time coming, my friend. It sure has. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I think you are probably the closest thing I will ever have on the podcast, Indiana Jones. So <laughs> I, I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too. It's, I know we've been trying to connect for some time, so I'm glad it's finally happening. Yeah, it's good. You've got this book coming out, Eat Like a Human. We're going to be talking about that. But I want to start with, I didn't know this about you until I started digging into your past in preparation for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this escaped my radar, but five years ago, you were in a show on National Geographic called The Great Human Race. Yes. Tell me about that. Like, where you, it started in Tanzania, but where did you go? Just tell the listeners about the show because it's pretty crazy what you did. Yeah. yeah actually, we were in, I think we started in the same place you were in Tanzania, so we, we have a lot in common there. About six years ago, National Geographic contacted me. They were they were thinking, you know, at that time, as you know, they were um, everybody was scrambling. The survival TV shows, the reality TV shows, were kind of hitting on it. They were starting to die a little bit, and they were, everybody was looking for the stretching these reality TV shows and doing something silly to get somebody's attention. They were putting naked people on there, and they were they were handcuffing people together and sticking them in the middle of the woods and trying to survive. All these all these silly things. But National Geographic, I, I really give them credit wanted to capitalize on sort of the survival TV genre and, and sort of the wave that was there, but do something smart with it, something meaningful. So what they wanted to do was, was tell a story of our shared ancestral past using the survival TV you know, as a platform. So they contacted me to be one of uh, a team of two people, me and a uh, cat big need ended up being my, my co- co-star. And the idea was, Starting at two and a half million years ago, they were going to put us in a different location um, where something at that particular time period uh, was invented or was done by our ancestors that that made a difference. That was it was worth telling a story about. And my job, you know, I, I'm a prehistoric and experimental archaeologist and primitive technologist. So so my job was to replicate the technologies from that time period, and we use those technologies to clothe ourselves, to feed ourselves, to protect ourselves, you know, all those things. And uh, we're able to, to, to really tell people what, what it was like to experience, again, it was only about 10 days at a time, but what it was like for a modern person sort of to experience uh, these different major time periods of our evolutionary past. We started at Tanzania two and a half million years ago, went up through Africa, crossed the Middle East, uh, crossed Asia, and ended in Oregon at 4,000 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So let's just, let's walk people through a few of those stages. So 2.5 sure. million years ago, you were, you were using these, these Acheulean tools, right? Or were these were different types of tools at that point? But 2.5 years ago, what kind of tools were invented? 
Well, it's funny because at the time, two and a half million years ago, was the the beginning of our uh, of stone tool technology, at least as we knew it then. And we now know it dates back to almost three and a half million years. So things have changed. But um, the idea was that the first technology our ancestors, we believed at the time, ever created was Oldowan technology at two and a half million years. Um, it was pre-fire. Uh, at that time, the you know, those tools allowed our ancestors to go from purely scavengers, eating nothing but limited amount of, of wild, seasonal wild fruits and plants and a whole lot of insects to scavenging. And that was the introduction of meat into our, into our diet. And then the next big, uh, the next major transition uh, happened at about 2 million years ago, which I think is the most important transition in our evolutionary past with regards to diet, where we invented hunting technology. It allowed our ancestors to become the predators, and we were no longer scavenging. We had access to the most nutrient-dense bioavailable parts of the animal, the blood, the fat, and the organs, and the flesh. And we also invented fire at that time. So the second episode was was hunting technology, basic Acheulean technology, stone tool technology, and fire technology. And the Acheulean tools are like the bifacial tools. They're almost like a stone knife or a spearhead, right? You know, actually, I'm glad I'm sitting here so because I have – Give me a moment. I have an example right here for you. Perfect. Um, for those who yeah. are watching, for those who are watching, you're going to get this. Maybe we'll put a highlight of this onto uh, Instagram or something. But if you want to see this, this Acheulean tool that Bill is going to grab, you can check out this video on uh, on YouTube. Right. So, so the first the first stone tool. Te- well, let me back up, Paul, because um, I do want to say, even though the show started at two and a half million years ago, that was our kind of anchor. We now know that stone tool technology was first invented, or at least we believe now, at 3.3 million years ago, so three and a half million years ago. And though it was a very basic stone tool where you had two rocks of the right material, you bang one against another, and you produce in less than a second a razor-sharp edge. And what's so – it sounds so simple, and it sounds like kids playing, but think about the power, the power of – before any of those stone tools were ever invented, our ancestors, who stood up full grown, about three and a half feet tall, were not as strong as us. You know, their nails were useless. Their teeth were almost useless. Their interacting with the with the environment was limited to their biological adaptations. But as soon as they struck two rocks together and produced a razor sharp edge, that edge, even though it was produced in less than a second, was stronger and sharper than anything on their body we could they could use to cut or grab or, or slice. So it was simple but transformative. Um, At 2 million years ago, they started creating a tool like this. And for those who can't see but are listening, a bifacial uh, technology means, you know, bifacial meaning two faces. So our ancestors at this time were controlling, uh, removing flakes from two sides of the rock in a very, very controlled way. Um, And we're able to produce these, we call them hand axes, but as you can tell, if you've ever dug into the ground, uh, or, or I'm sorry, chopped down a tree, this point on the end doesn't work very well. Uh, this was probably used, we believe, for butchering large animals and for digging into the ground to extract things like underground storage organs, you know, the, the, you know those sorts of things. Uh, be- beautiful. And what's also an important takeaway here to understand is um, if, if anybody's ever played, like, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We had Rubik's Cubes. And, and you, you, when you really just start learning how to use a Rubik's Cube and you can get the one face, right, the same color, and then you go to try to do it on the other side, and when you're trying to get the other side, you're messing up the first side. It's the same sort of thing with this. With uh, It's very advanced 
uh, technology to be able to control two faces of this rock at the same time because everything you do something to one side, you change some angles and some morphologies on the other side. It, ha it requires advanced planning and understanding of the fracture mechanics of these rocks. Now, is that an actual Acheulean tool or is that a recreation? This is a recreation that, that I did. Oh, you um, did that yourself? I did this myself, yeah. How and long did it take you to do that? To do this one uninterrupted um, with the right kind of rock, and if I don't make any mistakes, I could do something like this in about a half an hour. Okay, with practice. But, with practice. But it, it's also important to understand, too, that – and I know we're, we're it's so hard because you talk about something so powerful as stone tool technology and go in different directions. But to, to crack one rock against another and produce a razor-sharp edge – Anyone watching somebody else do it could pick it up and literally pick up a rock and, and do it by mimicking. But uh, a technology like this requires um, practice, and it also requires, I'm convinced, some sort of trans uh, purposeful transfer of knowledge, somebody teaching somebody else you know, how to do it. Suggestive of higher cortical development in a hominid brain, right? Absolutely. And what's yeah. – what's, you know, these – Several things come together all at the same time. When we start hunting and access the most nutrient-dense part of animals at will and have the ability to cook our food, which in some cases really helps not only detoxify foods but helps make some foods more nutrient-dense, more bioavailable, and the production of these stone tools, which requires higher cognitive thinking as well, it's the same time that our bodies and our brains grow exponentially to almost modern proportions. And there's, there's no doubt that all of those things happen at the same time for a reason. Right about 2 million years ago is kind of that magical point in our history. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is such an important point. It really can't be overemphasized. I just want to walk you through it one more time. So what, what Bill is describing is something that I've talked about in the past as well, which is this transition, and correct me if I make any missteps here, Bill, is this transition from Australopithecines, Australopithecus aparensis, uh, these sort of Lucy-type uh, fossilized remains, these, these pre-hominid ancestors, somewhere between a primate and a human. We don't really know what to call them, Australopithecines. Transitions to Homo habilis about 2 million years ago. And as Bill is saying, when we were Australopithecines, we were probably eating things like bugs and fruit and maybe a few seeds. So, and then suddenly, 2 million years ago, between 2.5 and 2 million years ago, we began to scavenge 2.5 million years ago with these old wand tools, the striking of two rocks together to make a single edge. And then 2 million years ago, these Acheulean tools, these bifacial tools, allow us to actually cut meat away and hunt. And then suddenly, 2 million years ago, our hominid ancestors become homo habilis with access to, this cannot be emphasized enough, the most nutritious foods on the planet. Would you agree with all that? Absolutely. Let me. There's a couple of things that have happened recently that I think, uh, yeah, so yes, uh, a couple of dates I think um, are, are good updates from that. That's a really good outline. Um, one is, so yeah, f somewhere between five and seven million years ago, our ancestors, we stood upright for the first time. Um, and we also, there's some suggestion that in addition to limited amounts of wild fruits and wild plants um, and a bunch of insects, they may have been targeting some underground storage organs, some, some carbohydrate-rich uh, roots, squirms, and tubers. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but a lot of people are suggesting that. Um, the, the new date for scavenging has been pushed back to about three and a half million years ago with the, with the um, uh, production of, of 
what we now know as the first stone tool. We call it the Lamequay tool. It was just west of Lake Turkana. This was found. Um, we've not only found the tool, but we found uh, the butchered remains of scavenged animals. So we, we find the tool, and we, and we know for sure they're cutting, hacking on bones. Again, they're not hunting, right? They're, they're scavenging the kills that were made by predators. And I think for everybody listening, and I'm, I'm sure uh, they might already know this, but we understand predatory behavior on the African savanna by watching modern correlates of the ancestors. So the, the, the animals that were running around two and a half, three and a half million years ago on the savanna were not lions and, and those, they were the ancestors to the modern day lions, just like, you know, they're, they're our ancestors as well. So their ancestors who were some nasty, crazy predators were out there taking down animals, um, jumping on them, using their huge canines to, to rip these carcasses apart and, we know by looking at, or we think by looking at the behavior of modern predators, that their behavior was the same in the past. They would take these animals, take them down, rip them apart, dive into the inside, and access the most bioavailable nutrient-dense parts, the blood, the fat, and the organs, gorge themselves like most Americans do on Thanksgiving, and do exactly the same thing. They go to the couch and sleep it off. And when they leave these carcasses on the savanna, these animals that are biologically equipped to go in and scavenge things like the ancestors of modern-day hyenas and buzzards will go in, rip off flesh, and, and do their thing. The problem was our ancestors were not biologically equipped to join that party. They could watch it as they're munching on some termites, but they couldn't go do it themselves. When they created the stone tool, it provided them access. They were no longer limited to their own physical limitations. They could go out there and hack off huge hunks of meat, bring them back to the elderly, the young, the sick, eat it themselves in safety somewhere else. Um, but what's, what I think is, is a real big takeaway from this is that when they start introducing meat into their diet, we don't see huge biological changes. We don't see, and we see a little bit. There's a little bit of body size growth, a little bit of brain size growth, but we don't see these massive changes. The massive changes happen when our ancestors start hunting and also control fire. And the difference between scavenging and hunting is the hunters have first access to the most nutrient dense parts of the animal. The and that happens blood. in two million years. Yeah. And let's emphasize that's the blood the organs and the fat, right? So yep, that's period. So, yeah, yeah. So I, in, in my book, The Carnivore Code, I, I suggested, you know, my hypothesis, my, my position was hunting made us human. And I think that this is exactly what we're talking about here. But you're, you're, you're sort of highlighting a point that I don't think I realized as well, that it, the hunting gave us access to blood, organs, and fat. You know, we probably had access to meat before that as scavengers, but it was blood, organs, and fat that really made us human and that really allowed us to become the, the, the form of Homo erectus and then Homo sapiens that we understand uh, to be today, that we are understood to be today. And so this is such an interesting conversation because uh, I, I think this is, a, this is sort of a, a question that I'll throw out there for a future podcast. Uh, you're welcome to comment it if you, on it if you'd like, but I'm not sure how plant-based advocates and vegans can know a shred of anthropology or archaeology and, and still not understand that the very foods that made us human, this unique access to blood, organs, and fat, in addition to meat, these were clearly the catalyst in addition to fire. You know, these were indispensable parts of our human evolution. And now we're being told based on badly done science, observational epidemiology, these foods are bad for us. It's like, it doesn't make any evolutionary sense. Do you, do you see the vegans doing this and, and think uh, this is incongruous in the same way that I do? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think 
you know, it's so hard. I was just doing, I was with Brian Sanders and Mary Ruddick. We did a, a Instagram live the other day uh, when I, I was just, I just got back from Ireland last night. So I was up in Ireland. They were down in Mexico doing some work and we were talking about something very similar. And one of the things that I said was that the, 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 the actual act of doing archaeology and excavating the ground and, and measuring and, and, and understanding soils, all of that is science. When you pull an artifact out of the ground, everything that happens from that point forward is um, uh, interpretation, right? The, you know, that, that it, it's – hold on one second. You've cut out on me. Are you still there? Yep. Okay, so you can hear me all right? I'll just keep going? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, good. So – Everything that when you when you pull an artifact out of the ground, everything from identifying that artifact to trying to understand how it was used, how it functioned, how it operated in a cultural system, how efficient it was, all of those sorts of things are are, are open to interpretation. And no, and even though we try very hard to uh, approach the archaeological record in an unbiased way. It's impossible. We're human. It's impossible to do. So the way that we interpret archaeological sites is very much also a product of things that are happening in in uh, in, in the world, in politics, and in understanding you know human environmental relationships, all these sorts of things. So um, it's a lot of this is open to some sort of an interpretation and the importance of it. But there's no doubt. We know for sure that we were scavenging. Meat has been in our diet for three and a half million years. The entire animal has been in our diet for two million years. And we see the biggest growth in body and brain size when we start introducing animals into our diets. But sometimes you start under uh, some of the um, couple things that I think are very important. Ammunition isn't the right word. Responses to um, uh, vegan interpretations of the importance of vegetables in the past. Number one. You know, sometimes I hear things like, well, we've been eating vegetables for five, you know, five million years, seven, actually before that, millions and millions and millions of years. Yeah, but they were small, their brains were small, and they had a high level of what we call sexual dimorphism, right? The males were a lot smaller, I'm sorry, a lot larger than the females, and we think that's the case because um, the increased nutritional need of females when they're doing, from an evolutionary perspective, the most important thing that female members of a species can be doing is uh, carrying a baby to full term, giving birth to a healthy baby, and 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 nursing that baby until they can take care of. It. I mean, that has to happen, or else the species dies out. And there's massive increases in nutritional needs during those periods of, of a woman's life. So if the, the thinking is, if they start out with with lower nutritional requirements um, in an environment where they maybe can't get all the you know food to that. When those nutritional requirements skyrocket, they they can handle that. But what we see when you start introducing animals into the diet and these incredibly nutrient dense, bioavailable foods that our bodies don't have to work that hard to get access to the nutrients in, that we start seeing a reduction in sexual dimorphism to the point where female human females, yes, on average, are smaller than human males, but nothing like they were in the past. So that's number one. Number two, yeah, they were eating plants, but as you know, and I've heard you speak about it, and I'm not completely the same. All plants contain toxins, right? And and all plants do, even our domesticated ones from the grocery store, the ones that are out in the wild. Um, not only are the toxins more prevalent, but often they're, they can do some, some nasty damage. So it's not like they're looking, the world is their oyster and they can go out like they're in the produce section of the grocery store. They are limited. If they don't have a technology to detoxify plants, 
they are very limited into the plants that they could eat. So it's by default hyper seasonal, by default hyper local, and their their selection is incredibly limited because there's not that many um, plants that are safe enough to consume for throughout you know. And then the the other point is that the insects were the most important part of that diet, and and we, there's been a lot of studies done with with chimpanzees looking at the importance of of, of insects. And again, the, one of the things we see is when when chimpanzees are lactating which is the highest nutritional need in, in, in a female's life when she's lactating even more so than pregnancy um, they go directly to insects and their in, insect cons consumption skyrockets so the, our, our vegan or somewhat other than insect uh, non-meat-eating ancestors the most important part of their diet were bugs so when they start introducing animals then we start seeing you know huge huge increases in, in, in everything the other thing i think is important to remember um two i was doing a, a tv piece for a, a, an irish uh, food show several years ago and and the host was like said you know because you said the word catalyst that made me think of it he said you know was it the introduction of animals that made our brains grow larger or, or eating these more of these foods and having access um, and I said, no, that, I think we're thinking about it potentially in a, in a slightly skewed way. It wasn't eating animals that started our brains growing larger. We, we're not really sure what that mechanism was. And some people actually so, suggest hallucinogenic drugs. But regardless, there's a lot of things that may have been pushing our brains to expand. But it was finally our ability to, in, to support that brain growth with the right nutrition that allowed it to happen and supported that brain growth. It's kind of a question of whether those foods were a catalyst or a releaser. Um, you know, maybe yeah. there was a maybe there was an environmental pressure. Maybe there were gene changes. I did a previous podcast with uh, Bill von Hippel. He talked about a certain gene that may have been involved in this brain expansion. So, but regardless, I think that the case is very strong that the inclusion of organs and blood and fat, the ability to hunt and get these most nutrient dense parts of an animal, uh, was. A, a, a critical factor, uh, an yeah. indispensable factor in making us who we are as humans. And, you know, the corollary point there that I'll make very clear to the listener that hopefully most people listening have heard me say before is that it just seems completely counterintuitive and evolutionarily inconsistent that those very foods that were at the center of our life, the center of our diet for literally millions, there's no hyperbole in that statement, millions of years millions. would somehow be bad for us. And it's interesting because in your book, um, I learned about the fire. You know, when I was writing my book, the, the best data that I could find suggested that fire was 500,000 or a million years old. But apparently, I think we've got some new evidence now that fire is older than that. You say 1.4, 1.6, or even 1.8 million years. So I found that quite interesting that, um, it, that according to the archaeological record, as you suggest, that fire has probably been with us for the majority of our time that we've been hunters. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And so there, you can imagine how difficult it would be to find evidence. If, if you went camping right now, had a small campfire, let it burn it down to ashes and then walked away from it and didn't do anything there for 2 million years and came back and tried to see that campfire, how difficult it would be or near impossible, if not completely impossible to find it in the archeological record. So, it, it's, it's difficult to find these things. We have found direct evidence of fire that date back very far into the past. Um, however, 
there's several people, me, uh, Francis Burton, who's a fantastic anthropologist that wrote a great book, Dr. Richard Rangham from Harvard. Um, we all, m- many people uh, believe that the control of fire, and I mean control of fire, I mean the ability to start it, put it out, control the temperature, control the light, control the heat, the ability to do all of those things with fire was somewhere around 2 million years ago. Um, ha- but the other thing I think is really interesting to think about is, and this is uh, Francis Burton's uh, suggestion or hypothesis, is that in order to get to the point where we are controlling fire at 2 million years, we would have had to start a relationship with fire millions of years earlier. I mean, think about it. We're like one of the only animal species on the planet that doesn't run and flee from fire. We actually come to it and build ceremonies and all sorts of things. It's a central part of our life. So we had to start understanding that fire could provide benefits. We had to start understanding that we could fuel that fire, continue that fire, uh, you know, do, do all sorts of things with it. So it probably was in our lives for several million years to get to the point where two million years ago, we truly believed that many of us believed that it was a central part of our lives. We could control it. And, you know, one of, if none of the other evidence, um, is enough for you. The one thing that I always go back to is it's also at right that uh, same time, just around 2 million years ago, that we have, for the first time ever, our hominid ancestors leaving Africa and going up uh, into, into Europe and the Middle East and eventually in, in, into parts of Asia. And so they're moving north out of Africa at around 2 million years ago. What's fascinating is that's the beginning of the last ice age. So we have our ancestors moving north out of Africa you know, going into northern latitudes at the beginning of the last ice age, the only way that that is possible is if you're um, not only using fire to help um, uh, prepare raw materials from different environments for food and diet, but also you're controlling your microclimate and you're keeping yourself warm enough that you're not going to die. There's no evidence for clothes until almost 200,000 years ago. So we have naked ancestors going into the ice age, you know, and, and, and doing very, very well. They have to be able to control their microclimate. And that's an interesting thing to just touch on briefly, the fact that our ancestors, that, that species, whether it's Homo habilis or Homo erectus, left Africa, and some stayed because Homo sapiens began in Africa 350 to, to 500,000 years ago. And then we see Neanderthals that left you know, before then, and then Denisovans. And so there's, there's evidence for uh, migration and um, <clears throat> egress from Africa before the appearance of Homo sapiens in Africa, correct? Well beforehand, absolutely, yes. And, and you know, I, I, I love to try, you know, I'm, I'm a professor and teacher at heart, so I, I love to try to um, share with people I'm speaking to the scenes that are in my head, how I picture what some of these things look like. And I, and I, and I think and and because it, it helps frame how we look at the rest of the world and, and all the kinds of questions that, that we're discussing today. One of the things that's also incredibly unique about now um, that was never the case in the past for millions of years is that right now we are the only upright, walking, intelligent, tool-making, culture-having beings on the planet. But that's only a product of the last several you know, tens of thousands of years, you know, past probably 30, 25, 30,000 years. From millions of years ago up until, in, in, from, from my lens, relatively recently, 25,000 years ago or so, we had multiple species of intelligent, tool-making, culture-having, probably speaking individuals coming in contact with one another. We had Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and Denisovans and um, uh, 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 all sorts of different 
it's almost like the, that movie uh, uh, Quest for Fire, where you see the different species coming together. That's what life was like on this planet. And the fact that we're the only ones left is, is, is a really unique, really novel new thing. And I don't think people, yeah, it's, it's very humbling to imagine that, that, that Homo sapiens is the sole surviving species of these hominids, that many of them have gone extinct, Neanderthals, Denisovans. I've often spoken about this species Paranthropus robustus, which appears to have been, uh, based on my understanding, a, a branch point from Australopithecines into Homo habilis and Paranthropus. Mm -hmm. And based on the stable isotope studies that I've seen, Paranthropus went more toward plant eating and Homo habilis went more toward uh, animal eating and paranthropus went extinct as well. Are you familiar with that lineage? Yeah, yeah I, I know. I don't know enough to speak uh, intelligently about what caused their extinction, but yes, they were, they were very plant, they're definitely plant-based. Plant-based. Cool. So you say something in your book that, that really kind of got me cheering, Bill, and we can dive into <laughs> this. You say plants should scare the hell out of you. And that I is the it. opening line of that chapter, yes. Plants <laughs> yes. should scare the hell out of you. I just, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I tweeted yesterday, call me the anti-broccoli crusader. And, and another tweet that I had that I thought was, was pithy and, and clever was, you know, meat and organs are a great way to detox from eating vegetables. But talk to me about your perspective on how our ancestors might have approached plant foods. We've talked about animal foods. I want to circle back to that at the end of the podcast sure. and, and talk about your experiences in Mongolia uh, with, with the herders there eating a yak. But talk to me about how our ancestors might have approached plant foods from your perspective. From my perspective, super cautiously and with a whole lot of technology. Well, you know, one thing I think we, we very much need to remember that is the baseline for all of my work and the way that I view the world and the, the relationship between humans and, and, and food is that we have, the humans have, are incredibly biologically inferior to other animals on this planet and are, we have an incredibly inefficient digestive tract. And a lot of people ask me, and, and I know I'm a little bit jumping around, but bear with me to kind of frame this properly. The, a lot of people ask me, what, what was the first domesticated species on this planet? You know, and I say, well, how do you define domestication? Now, domestication to me means you take a, a species, take it out of its natural environment, put it in a cultural environment, in other words, an environment that humans have created. Um, that environment tends to to certain kinds of things, uh, you know, maybe gives it food or gives it light or gives it whatever protection. And over time, that species in that culturally created environment um, changes genetically. And in some cases, changes genetically to the point that they can no longer survive on their own outside of that cultural environment. So if that's your description or, or, or definition of domestication, some people would suggest, well, if it's a plant, the earliest domestication of plants would have occurred around 15,000 years ago or so at the earliest. If it's an animal, most animal domestications were happening between eight and 10,000 years ago, but the dog was domesticated probably much earlier, maybe around 35,000 years ago or so. But my, to me, using that definition, the first domesticated species on earth were humans. We domesticated ourselves three and a half million years ago when we started creating these first stone tools and started, and because of the creation of these stone tools, we could access resources. Put, we put ourselves in a culturally human-created environment right, with these technologies, stone tools, fire, and a whole bunch of other things. We genetically changed because of, and, you know, through evolutionary processes, as a result of 
this new environment we were in and our ability to access foods we never could before. And with the introduction of things like animal-based uh, foods, our bodies and our brains grew to the point that we can no longer We've domesticated ourselves. We can no longer survive outside of a culture-created environment. If we got rid of all our technology, and I say this all the time, I don't care if you're Bear grills. I don't care if you know every, you know, the behavior patterns of all sorts of animals around the world and, you know, you know all the, the poisonous and not poisonous plants and all that. If we stuck you in the middle of the woods naked, well, in most parts of the world, you'd die of exposure. But you couldn't feed yourself. It's impossible to do. So um, I say that because, in my mind, the ancestral diet is one that is created through technology, stone tools, we can, and then hunting, and then fire, and fermentation, and all sorts of other sorts of things. And we've built our bodies on diets that were reliant upon these technologies to introduce foods we have no business eating. We biologically have no business eating, but we now require because our bodies are built on the backs of these. I say it all the time. We're omnivores, not by design. We're omnivores through technology. So to go back to your original question, how do we deal with plants? The only way we've been able to deal with plants as long as we have is because, and we see this through time, and it's a focus of a lot of my research, we've figured out ways of taking plants and doing our best to make them as bioavailable as possible, make them as nutrient-dense as possible, and make them as safe as possible. The thing with animals is that once you've taken an animal down and cut it open, that's all really the technology needs to do. I mean, there's some evidence that cooking meat a little bit helps uh, make it a little more bioavailable. It's sure that especially with red meat, if we chop it up or grind it or slice it real thin, it's a little bit easier for our bodies to access the nutrients in meat and not have to work so hard. But the blood, the fat, and the organs, heck, in most cases, they're easier for our bodies to access the nutrients without the cooking than, than with the cooking. So the technology for animals, to me, is really about harvesting that animal and getting it cut open. And then the, the, for the rest of it, our bodies can do the work. But for plants, harvesting that plant is where the real work begins because those plants, you know, plant, contrary to many people's thinking, plants are not put on this earth to feed us. Like plants are put on this earth to do what they need to do. They need to survive and protect themselves, and they do it through chemical warfare. So they do it through because they can't move. So they have all these toxins. So if you look at the technologies that our ancestors uh, developed through time and we continue to have to re rely upon, we need to make plants safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable as possible through technology. And that's how we've approached plants in the past. Now, if you're thinking about plants, do you look at a plant and – see that some parts of a plant are less toxic than others. For instance, in your book, you mentioned fruit and flowers. And, and I think about, you know, roots, stems, leaves, and seeds being separate from those. But do you, mm -hmm. do you think about it this way? Do you think plant foods have a spectrum of toxicity? Are there some parts that are more or less toxic of plants? 100%. And, and, and I think this is where we can take a step back. It, it's, it's so hard to... For some people, it's so hard to understand how our ancestors could just eat like other animals without having to overthink it, without having chemists and lab tests and all this. I mean, but it makes complete sense when you're connected to your food and where it comes from. And, you know, I've been, I've been a forager for now 38 years. Um, I started when I was 10 years old. Um, and that relationship with watching plants grow and harvesting and detoxifying has really helped me, I think, create this uh, – this lens through which I look at plants, but uh, it's as easy as this. Separate any sort of discussion about humans eating plants for a minute and whether you're supposed to or not. Just take that, put that aside. Let's just think about the plants. 
plants are trying to do the same thing as any other species on this planet. The things that all all members of the, all species have to do: reproduce viable offspring, that then reproduce viable offspring, that then reproduce viable offspring, and if you do that, you survive, and if you don't, you become extinct. So plants can't move, so they do this through creating chemical and, uh, uh, and physical defense mechanisms. So the physical defense mechanisms are things like thorns or bark on trees or really hard nutshells, right, those kind of things that protect the plant. But in almost – actually, in all cases, plants have developed toxins – to protect them from predation, from insects and, and, and fungi and, and animals in, uh, you know, that are trying to eat them and those sorts of things. For most of the plant, right, because at a certain point, most plants then require their seeds or their, off, their progeny to get deposited somewhere and, and transported and then at that place be able to uh, create new life. So things like stems are there to hold the plant up. Roots are there in many cases as a storage mechanism for, for energy. Leaves are there to help through photosynthesis. None of that require, you know, they don't want those parts to go away. But a flower requires, in many cases, pollination, and they want to, they want to attract something to it. So often they're brightly colored. Often they smell very good. Often they're very sweet tasting, or they're very sweet to draw things in. But more importantly, parts like fruits are there you know, they work because they when, when they're ripe, they smell great, they taste great, they want animals to eat them, and then deposit their seeds somewhere else. But then when you think about things like seeds, nuts, and legumes, they're there to survive the digestive tract of animals. They're not there to, there to provide nutrition. They're there, and that's why they're full of, you know, anti-nutrients and lectins and all of those sorts of things. So, um, you know, the quick, prim you know, thinking about plants, yeah, there's different parts that have different toxicity levels for different reasons, but and you can understand what that is by understanding the role of those different parts of a plant. And then if you understand all that, if you are going to eat plants, you need to understand how to make those plants as safe as possible. And then understand, as you as everyone listening already knows, even though there might be nutrition in plants, rarely are they there in a very accessible form to our bodies. We need to do something to allow our bodies access. And and I'll say this, I, there are ways to do it. It's hard work, and you have to stay on top of it. But, um, you know, I, I don't write, for example, uh, sourdough bread. I, my family even owns a sourdough bread bakery. I would never tell somebody who doesn't eat bread to go start eating bread, even if it's sourdough. But I will tell somebody, if you're going to eat bread and if you're going to continue to feed your children bread and it's going to be a part of your life, then there are healthier ways to do it. And it does make a big difference. And sourdough bread is by far the, uh, the safest for the human body to consume. Thank you for that. It's, it's great to hear. I mean, I think that we think very similarly about this. And so that's great to hear your perspective also. Talk a little bit about fruit, because I think there was an anecdote in your book about how fruit actually sometimes contains toxins until it's ripe. Plants are so smart. They're so freaking smart. Like until the seed that is in that fruit is ready to germinate or ready to be distributed, they're not going to make the fruit brightly colored. They're not going to make the fruit sweet. They're not going to make the fruit fragrant. I forget exactly what it was. Do you remember yeah. the anecdote I'm talking about in your book? Oh, 
Absolutely. So th there's numerous fruits that are like this, but the, the example that I gave was a wild persimmon. So anybody, yeah. in, especially in East North America, so there's persimmons around the world. Most of them are the Japanese version, and it's the case, and that's a domesticated version. It's the case with this too, but the, the American persimmon, the wild persimmon, that if you try to eat that fruit before it's ripe, it's a strong astringent. It sucks all the water out of your mouth, and it, it it's an incredibly unpleasant experience. But if you wait till it's completely ripe, which is coincides with the time that those seeds are ready to germinate and support new life. I mean, this just makes such complete evolutionary sense. It is truly my favorite fruit on the planet. It goes from being something that I wouldn't give somebody I hate to something I go out of my way to try to access because it's that incredibly delicious. And it's an evolutionary response. Now, at the same time, um, there's another wild fruit in our area called the pawpaw which, by the way, was George Washington's favorite dessert, was a chilled pawpaw. Um, uh, anyhow, so it, it grows wild here, and the flesh, when it's ripe, same thing, is, is uh, incredibly delicious. But the seeds have a, are a powerful neurotoxin. And if you, if you eat the fruit and you nick the seed and you get some of that seed, at best, you'll be vomiting, vomiting and diarrhea for two or three hours. Um, at worst, it can actually cause death, and people die every year from this. But it, it's that same, you know, it's, it's there to survive your digestive tract, but it, it's, it's the natural evolutionary mechanisms to ensure that that plant, you know, that seed isn't there for you to eat. That seed is there to produce another pawpaw tree. Don't eat pawpaw seeds, guys. Don't even don't even put the pawpaw seeds in your mouth. Holy shit. That's <laughs> no, crazy. Don't do it. it reminds me of when I go back to Austin and I try and eat a papaya because here in Costa Rica, we have the best papayas. I cut it open. They're full of these like plump seeds. And, and no, I don't eat the seeds, guys. I know in like hippy dippy circles, they say the seeds are anti-parasitic, which may be the case because the seeds have a bunch of toxins in them, but I don't have any oh, yes. parasites. I don't need to eat papaya seeds. They're not good to eat if I don't have parasites. And, you know, the, the seeds are plump and the flesh is just delicious and orange and juicy. And I go back to Austin and I, I made the mistake of trying to buy a papaya in the grocery store and it was from Mexico. And I thought, okay, maybe. And I cut it open and it's just bitter and it's hard. And I'm thinking this is not even good. Like I just don't have any desire to eat that as a human because that papaya was probably picked before it was ripe. It doesn't even want to be eaten. This is actually a big problem for me, Bill, living in Costa Rica, living at the equator, is I really like tropical fruit here. I love the mm. bananas here, and I love the papayas here, and I can't even eat bananas. I'm going to – maybe I hope I don't do this, but I'm going to ruin people on bananas. All of you guys in North America eating bananas, your bananas stink, and my bananas in Costa Rica <laughs> – kick the heck, kick the, kick the butt of your bananas. Like if you've never had a banana that grew on a tree in Costa Rica, you know, locally here where I am in Santa Teresa, I have bananas in my freaking yard that I can eat. You know, that's, that banana like ruins you on every banana uh, that you're ever going to eat anywhere else. Cause bananas are not native to North America and you can't get it ripe enough. It's not supposed to be ripe. It's usually ripened with ethylene or something. It doesn't taste the same, but that persimmon example is fascinating. But, and the pawpaw example is particularly pointed because it really highlights the difference between a fruit and the seed that is in the fruit. And I love that you pointed this out earlier. When we say the word seed, we mean grain, nut, legume, or seed. So why don't we start talking? Let's talk a little bit about seeds and sure. the way that we encounter seeds in our diets today as humans. And you, you hinted at this a little bit with sourdough bread, but the way that these seeds, the toxins these seeds have, and how we might go about detoxifying them if we insist on eating seeds. 
Sure. So again, remember those, that part of the plant is the reproductive part of the plant. And well, this is an example I give quite a bit in my sourdough classes. I, I bring out an egg right, and I bring out a wheat berry and I say, look, um, you know, if we divided each one of these into the three major parts, there's a lot of similarities, right? First off, they're there to do the same thing, support new life. Um, and an egg, it has the protective mechanism is the shell, then it has the whites, and then it has the most nutrient-rich part of it is obviously the yolk. And on a wheat berry or a grain, it's a very similar thing. You know, the bran is on the outside, which is there mostly just as a physical protective mechanism. Then you have the endosperm, which is mostly just starch. And then you have um, the germ, the, 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 uh, the heart of it, uh, which is the part, if you have whole wheat flour, that's, the, that's the, the main part of it. That's the nutritional powerhouse as much as there can be. In, in, in a, so there's some similarities there. Um, but then there's a lot of differences. If I set that egg, an egg is can remain viable to support new life for a couple weeks. A grain you can put on the table or on the road or in a parking lot or somewhere dry on a rock, and it can remain viable for thousands of years. And we've found archaeological site have found maize corn that's 10,000 years old that we've been able to germinate and grow into a new plant. Why is that? What's the difference? Well, that egg is relying solely on the shell of that egg as a protective mechanism, and it doesn't last very long, and then things are going to go bad. But there are so many chemicals that things like the anti-nutrients and, and the phytate, all of those parts, of the, those chemicals on that grain, which in very many ways are similar, in, in many ways are similar to legumes and grains and nuts and seeds, all of it, that will keep it dormant until it's in the right environment that it lets down its defenses and then sprouts and then begins and creates new life. And the only way to begin, even begin to make those seeds, nuts, legumes, whatever, safe for human consumption is to trick it into thinking it's in the right environment, that it lets down those defenses. And the first time I, I realized this, um, I was doing that same show in Ireland. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I told the story in the book. I forget. But um, there was, it was actually a vegan episode for a, a series called What Are You Eating in, in Ireland? And I get a call from the producer and I'm like, listen, it was the year I was living in Ireland. And they said, we're, we're doing a show. We'd like to have you on it as a guest. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Um, what's the show about? And he said, veganism. And I said, I don't think I'm the right person for this. Why would you ask me? He's like, no, 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 no. The host is going to um, uh, go on. He's going to get all this blood work done. And he's going to go on a vegan diet for like three months and then go and get blood work done at the end to see the changes. And, and during the three months, he's going to interview a lot of the members of the vegan community in Ireland, which is actually quite strong in Ireland. And then what we want to do to kind of wrap it all up is we'd like you to come out um, with us. Uh, you know, maybe we go in the woods somewhere and you can make walk us through prehistory of, of uh, uh, animals in human diets. Maybe you can make a few stone tools, do a few things. I said, oh, okay, that I'm comfortable with that. So he comes out. I had a couple of my graduate students out there, and we had some deer and some rabbits and some ducks, and they're butchering them with stone tools. And I, I'm, I'm making some stone tools with the guy on camera, and we're talking through the prehistory of, of, of the human diet and when animals come in and how important they are. And then he says, hey, pick up one of those ducks for me and cut it open and pull everything out on the inside. And I'm like, on camera? He's like, yeah, yeah. Like on camera, he said, yeah, it's Ireland. And I didn't really know what that meant, but okay. So I cut open this duck. I reached all the way up inside. I mean, all the way up to the neck. I pulled everything out and I had it laying out on my arm, on my forearm. And I looked down at the anatomy of this duck, which is a granivorous bird. These ducks are designed to eat grains. That's what they do. 
And I realized the importance of how their anatomy uh, allows them to do this and what we don't have. So the, when a, a, a granivorous bird eats a grain, they, it goes into their mouth and it goes into what we call a crop. And that crop is an enlarged pouch that where the grains, it's a warm, moist environment where the grains will sit sometimes for 14 or 16 hours. And during that time, incredible transformations happen. Even though it's just sitting there, it's sitting in a warm, moist environment, which is exactly where a seed wants to be to support new life. Think about when you plant seeds into the ground, right? So it, it, it soaks, it ferments, and sometimes even sprouts. And that's the power, that, that begins the, um, the detoxification of these seeds and also the breakdown of these seeds and getting them ready for consumption. Then it goes down into what they call a gizzard. If anybody's taken apart a chicken or a turkey, you've seen these things. And they're two muscular discs. And these granivorous birds eat gravel on purpose. They eat rocks. And those rocks sit in between these discs. And literally, they're stone grinding these grains that have already been through that chemical transformation in the crop. And then it goes into a digestive tract, which for all intents and purposes for this conversation operates very similar to ours. And I'm thinking, oh my God, other than other than baking, you know, the actual fire, they're making sourdough bread in their in their anatomies, what is exactly what they're doing. Um, and so then I'm thinking to myself, wow, we don't have any of those things at all. And we're just trying to eat these grains that have been ground, but have been through none of the rest of the process. And I was wondering to myself, as I'm looking at this duck, and this is all in, in like 30 seconds, but <laughs> I'm thinking all these things. Um, if I was able to take a grain and bypass those two things, uh, the, the crop and the gizzard, and, and stick that into their uh, digestive tract, which the part that operates like ours, I wonder what would happen. But then I'm like, ah, I'll never know. I'll never know what would happen. And then I found out the answer to it a couple of years ago when I heard about a disease called angel wing disease. And angel wing disease is what happens to ducks and geese uh, that are in city parks and the old people or cute old people are sitting there feeding them Wonder Bread. They're eating this bread and they get uh, all sorts of um, malformations because of uh, nutrient deficiencies. And here's, here's just the, the power of the technology. They're eating, essentially, when they're eating the Wonder Bread, they're eating what they're designed to eat, right? They're eating grains, but they're eating grains that have been put through our modern system that screws them all up, and that ability to soak and sprout and ferment is no longer there once it's cooked. So they're not, even though they're eating grains, they're not allowing their bodies to do what it needs to do, and they actually get all sorts of malformations, and you know, they, they look all crippled, and they have all sorts, of, all sorts of issues. And that's exactly what we're doing to ourselves as humans when we're eating those grains in a modern industrial food system sense. Now, I will, and I know um, I probably advocate a little more for a more varied diet than you do, but again, I, I would never suggest somebody start eating bread that isn't. But if you are, if you approach those grains using ancestral methods to make them as safe and nourishing as possible, you're eating a completely different food than Wonder Bread. You're eating a completely different food than you can buy at a regular grocery store. And so sourdough bread is, um, you know, one example with grains, soaking, sprouting um, uh, for longer periods of time are great to do with um, also with nuts and legumes. Legumes are incredibly dangerous. I mean, I, I think it's three or four raw red kidney beans will land you in the hospital, period. I mean, think about it. We don't think about how toxic our food is um, because we think once it's gotten to the grocery store, it's completely safe to eat. Three or four red kidney beans will put you in the hospital. And if you eat more than that, you, you absolutely, absolutely can die. The only way to make red kidney beans or kidney beans in general safe for human consumption is a combination of both soaking and cooking, long, long-term cooking. 
And you need both of those together. And if you skip one, you're in, you're in trouble. And a good example of skipping it is today, nowadays, we have, you know, the Instapots and all these pressure cookers. Um, you can put dry beans into a pressure cooker without soaking them and come out the other end with something that is soft enough to eat, but it is not safe enough to eat. You have to go through that, you know, both of those processes. And that's where and where I get excited about understanding ancestral approaches to these foods. And with your question earlier, Paul, with, you know, how did our ancestors approach these approach plants? Well, super cautiously and with a whole host of technology that allows them to do their best to mitigate the dangers of plants. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. When I was with the Hadza in Tanzania, um, you know, it was it's funny because – I want to go back and spend more time with them. I know you've spent time with the Samburu people uh, of Kenya as well, so maybe similar experiences. But the Hadza are really living like hunter-gatherers, probably the best example that I'm aware of on the planet. And, you know, if you look at the literature on the Hadza, they'll say they eat all this fiber, and they'll say that they eat baobab seeds. But when I was there, they didn't even touch any of that stuff. They really didn't eat much fiber at all. They didn't eat baobab seeds. And you ask them, and it becomes very clear that they have this hierarchy of foods. And I don't think that our ancestors never ate plant foods or never ate seeds. But I think that it's very clear that when they get up in the morning, the first thing on their brain is animal meat, organs, blood, and fat. They want to hunt. And if they're out hunting and they see honey, they're going to eat the heck out of that honey. And if they're out hunting and they see fruit, they're going to eat some fruit if they want some fruit. So this is why I've sort of created this paradigm of an animal-based diet. It's like, okay, these are clearly... Um, based on what I've seen and my clinical experience and even medical literature, the, the most prized foods by humans. If you're going to eat plant foods, eat the least toxic plant foods, which would be fruit and, and honey, if you consider that to be a plant food. And mm-hmm. include organs and meat and blood and fat in your diet because those are the things our ancestors thought of first. If you want to eat other plant foods and I want people to have the most varied diet, I love your approach, which is understand that once you go out of the realm of fruit, you are, you are going into dangerous waters, and you have to use the proper technology to detoxify these things. You know, if you're going to eat grains, you must sprout and pressure cook and do a whole lot of work to these grains. Um, and beans, I mean, you can pressure cook the heck out of them and sprout them and reduce the toxins somewhat. My concerns are that some of the toxins still remain. You know, it's, you, yeah. really can't, you really can't get rid of all the toxins with these methods, but you can clearly detoxify them. And I think our ancestors did. When they, and that's really the beauty and the brilliance of humans because you don't always have a big kill unless you live in 2021. <laughs> you know, we can always get meat usually, right? But our ancestors right. needed these foods as like bridging fallback foods, so they had to know how to detoxify them. So I think that it's so interesting to think about these methods and the way that the methods really place the foods into a hierarchy. And I just want to emphasize that from my perspective, eating foods detoxified is better but still, there could be some residual toxins that could trigger people. I still think people, for instance, if someone has celiac disease, they still usually can't eat sourdough bread. There's still going to be gluten. Right. There's still going to be lectins. There's still going to be things in the, in the wheat that could cause people immunologic problems. Certainly less toxic than a wheat that hasn't had this done to it. And you gave this great example of a bean, a red kidney bean with phytohemoglutin and lectins. Yeah, it'll absolutely land you in the hospital unless you cook the heck out of it. And, you know, somewhat hilariously, when I had Stephen Gundry on the podcast and we had a friendly debate, he noted that Joel Furman, who I've also debated on the podcast, pressure cooks his red kidney beans. And he was always pointing out, like, hey, Joel, if these red kidney beans are so good for you, why are you pressure cooking them? You know, even Joel Furman, you know, even Joel Furman this died in the world vegan, 
who I've debated in the past, guys, if you want to hear that podcast, it's in the history um, of this podcast, uh, you know, it's clearly acknowledging, hey, I better pressure cook because there are toxins in these foods. Um, talk to me a little bit about almonds. This is a really interesting thing because here's, here's something that I, that I noticed, uh, Bill. When I was a raw vegan, I ate so many sprouted almonds, and they always made my stomach hurt. So even for me personally, and there could be some individuality, with sprouting and soaking, the almonds still messed up my gut. And I've told the story many times, but I used to go to these fancy, like, vegan dinners where they would make this, like, vegan tiramisu, and it tasted great. And inevitably, 15 to 20 minutes later, I had to leave the party because I was bloated to the point of feeling pregnant and just, you know, just really, really uncomfortable with all of these almonds even sprouted. But the history of almonds is quite fascinating. Think of them as like, they're like the darling, right? There's almond milk and all these things, but almonds used to be toxic, didn't they? Oh, not only did they used to be toxic, they still are toxic. And here, here's, look, I, I, and I'll, I'll complete disclosure, I have an issue. I have, my body has an ox, issue with oxalates anyhow. And I've had three medical mysteries in my life that no doctor could explain, and every one of them were solved when I took oxalates out of my diet. And it turns out that the last piece of my diet that had contained oxalates that I that I had hanging on, that I finally removed it from my diet to make a difference, were almonds. Um, I, it, it turns out, I, and because I'm so interested for myself in oxalates, it's one of those toxins that we have an incre- I haven't found very good evidence to show um, ancient processing strategies that really do a good job of getting rid of them. Fermentation, it looks like, helps a little. And there's ways of cooking, like some people suggest cooking with dairy um, helps, you know, bind the calcium and the oxalates together so it's not, not depleting calcium from your from your body when it goes through. But regardless, these are some nasty, nasty things. And um, one of the issues I think we have, and I, and I hope this isn't off topic, but it, it's completely related, is we are so distanced from our food, where it comes from and how to prepare it, that we don't. We, we can't use common sense to approach food any longer, and we start listening to other people. And unfortunately, most of the other people are, are, are part of the modern industrial food system, and they're, doing thing, they're, they're telling you to eat a certain way to make money, not because they're trying to make you healthy. And if you think about it, even something as simple as harvesting and cracking nuts can transform the way you think about how many nuts you should be eating in a given setting. If I hand you, I, I can buy almonds at the dollar store. I can buy a bag of almonds at the dollar store. And if you're using things like price and convenience to understand how much of something you should be eating, you'll eat that whole bag of almonds, which is probably seven or eight times the uh, oxalate le- amount you should be eating for the entire day just in that one bag of almonds. But if I had you harvest those almonds and crack open those shells and sit there and eat those, then you're going to eat, you know, a dozen, you know, something almonds. It's a completely different thing. It's the same thing. You know, we've, we've screwed up that, um, that understanding that relationship with, with our food and harvesting and processing because of things like government subsidies on, on wheat and corn and soy. I mean, planting, hunting an animal, butchering that animal and cooking that animal may seem like a lot of work. But if you compare that to preparing a field, planting the field, tending the field, harvesting the field, you know, drying the grains, grinding the grains, and then cooking the grains to make a loaf of bread, they're night and day. I mean, they're completely night and day. But we can go to the dollar store and buy a 99-cent bag of flour and a little package of yeast, and all of a sudden we've taken 99% of that out. We're making a loaf of bread. We say, hey, this is wholesome, right? So uh, there's, I do think that connection is incredibly important. So, yep, yeah, almonds – 
almonds are incredibly dangerous. And, and again, um, uh, oxalates are something that I spend a lot of time looking at. But even through that same lens, you know, for, from an oxalate perspective, as, as many of you know, almonds, spinach, the, you know, those sorts of things are, are bad. But, um, you know, just as another example of, of a food that most of us eat on a regular basis that is loaded with problems is our potatoes. Potatoes are loaded with problems, including oxalates. Um, there's ways of mitigating some of it. And I spent some time in South America, in Bolivia and Peru, looking at ways of, of detoxifying potatoes. But again, it's a food that we eat massive quantities of without thinking. Many of us think eating massive quantities of them are making us healthier, and they're causing all sorts of issues. I wanted to show this, Bill, because I've talked about this study a couple of times, and I don't know if I've ever shown it on the podcast um, the title for those listening is hyperoxaluria, which is excess oxalates in the urine and genitourinary disorders in children ingesting almond milk products. How crazy is this one? So it's an abstract. It's a case series. We describe three children presenting with hematuria, dysuria, or kidney stones, which is blood in the urine, pain with urination, or kidney stones, and hyperoxaluria, too much oxalates in the urine, believed to be related to the ingestion of excessive amounts of almond milk products. Uh, their, their, their conclusion is all genitourinary uh, and urinary metabolic disturbances resolve after discontinuation of almond milk ingestion. Therefore, pediatricians should be aware of this potential link. I don't think many pediatricians are aware of the dangers of almond milk and, and genitourinary disorders in kids. It's crazy. Think about it, I, I, and I'm familiar with that study, and there's, there's a couple of other ones as well that are showing, for the first time ever, children under the age of 10 are presenting with kidney stones, and in every case, they were in, in a family where the uh, parents were trying to support a vegan diet where they're replacing milk, and we can have a huge conversation about milk, but replacing milk with almond milk and these kids are drinking the same amount of almond milk as they would have been drinking with milk at that age. And I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And don't even get us started on oat milk and the problems with oat milk because it's usually containing seed oils and sugars. Um, I also wanted to show this paper, which I think is quite interesting. Um, while we are on the topic of uh, oxalates, um, the effects of cinnamon turmeric mm. Uh, and cinnamon and turmeric on urinary oxalate excretion, plasma lipids, and plasma glucose in healthy subjects. Uh, I did a controversial thoughts video the other day about why turmeric is bullshit, um, but the percentage of oxalate uh, that was water-soluble differed markedly between cinnamon and turmeric, uh, which appeared to be the primary cause of greater urinary oxalate excretion uh, and absorption from turmeric. Turmeric is very high in oxalates, guys. Just one reason why uh, turmeric is is kind of bullshit in my opinion. That's the subject of the other video. We can link to the previous video that I did on that in uh, the show notes for this episode. But uh, in summary, um, we have a root and we, we talked, Bill just talked about potatoes, but remember that roots are storage organs and roots don't want to get eaten any more than the rest of the plant does. And so uh, a lot of these roots, just like the seeds are very high in oxalates. Sweet potatoes have a moderate amount and these oxalates can accumulate in humans. Some fruit has oxalates too. You should know that like raspberries and blackberries are moderately high in oxalates. Dates are actually pretty high in oxalates. And um, I believe kiwis have a moderate amount of oxalates. So if you're oxalate sensitive, uh, be aware of that. And if you're not eating oxalates from things like spinach or almonds or rhubarb or uh, beets, you're probably going to be fine eating a little bit of oxalates from fruit. Uh, the last paper I'll show with oxalates is this one, which is 
one of my favorites. The title is Green Smoothie Cleanse, quote-unquote, Causing Acute Oxalate Nephropathy. Uh, this is a woman who had uh, pre-existing kidney disease, I believe, or maybe she was post and y gastric bypass, which caused increased absorption of the oxalates, and she may have had some fat malabsorption. So she had some... Um, she had some predisposing factors, but uh, in a few, either short-term or long-term dialysis, yeah, she had Roux-en-Y gastric bypass for obesity, which predisposed her. But there are a lot of people out there who may be believing that a green smoothie is a healthy thing after a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And even for the, those of us that have normal fat uh, absorption and are not going to be absorbing quite as many oxalates as this woman, uh, green smoothie cleanses can still be a massive oxalate load in our bodies. It's it's scary stuff, and it's interesting Thanks for sharing your your personal experience with them as yeah, well. Let, let me just mention two are on the topic. Um, I don't know if you know who Sally Norton is. If you come across her at all, she's fantastic. She's coming out with a new book right now. I believe it's on pre-order uh, about oxalates. And, I should uh, probably get her on the podcast to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, she's absolutely. she's fantastic. She has she does a lot of great work with oxalates. I would highly recommend it. Um, and so you also mentioned tannins and saponins. We don't have to go into all the plant toxins, uh, yep. but there are a lot of different plant toxins that occur throughout the plant, uh, especially in the seeds and the roots and other things like that. So um, I want to bring it back full circle. In the book, you describe being in Mongolia and, and seeing one of the yak herders um, harvest a yak. Describe that because I thought it was so interesting to hear how they did it. Uh, you know, let me let me paint that picture first uh, by saying something about the first meal I had in Mongolia, and then I'll type. So we landed in Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar is the main city of Mongolia. Half the population of Mongolia lives in this one city, and we ate at one of the higher end restaurants in Ulaanbaatar. And I was so excited for this for this meal, and we sit down, and the two most expensive things on the or the two top things on the menu was one the horse organ platter, and the second one was just it would translate it into like meat. I, I don't know what it was just like meat. And they came out the two platters and same table, same restaurant, same chef. It was a marked difference between the two. So the horse organ platter came out like it, it was in a, in a four star restaurant, a five star restaurant. Like it was beautifully plated. All the organs were, were done in a separate way that you could actually see them and make out exactly what they were. And they are dressed with herbs and all. And then this other um, dish was all gray. But the one was super colorful. The other one was all gray, and it was chunk-sized, fist-sized chunks of meat that was a common – every one of them was a combination of fat and gristle and meat and bone. Um, nothing was – you know, you couldn't even use a knife on it. It was – you had to take it and, like, gnaw on it, right? And it was all gray, and, and it wasn't dressed. It wasn't treated special, but it was right there. So that was the first experience in Mongolia, and that was in the main city. So weeks later, we're out on the steppe, and, and we're in the uh, the northern area. We're, we're, we're then site of the border. I mean, Siberia was right there. It's in northern Mongolia. And we're at this yak herder's gear, right, yurt, and his closest neighbor was 20 or 30 miles away. And they were kill, they were about to kill and, and butcher a yak. And he got two of his neighbors to come and help him. It was 40 degrees below zero. And these two neighbors came from, remember, neighbors was relative. It was 20 or 30 miles away. And they came to help. And they, they brought this massive animal out. They led, it, led the animal out. And they took a, a big sledgehammer, dropped this animal to its knees in one perfectly well-placed strike, turned over the yak on its back. And now the yak's back is very rounded. So they put two logs, parallel logs down to, to make it so it didn't roll. So picture this massive animal um, on its back, feet up in the air, 
they the first thing they did was they they cut the neck to to bleed it and they captured all the blood which they used every bit of it and then what i thought was most interesting i, I i've been a hunter my entire life and i've i've field dressed tons of animals and i've never seen anything like this happen before so most of the time what you would do when you clean an animal just like you would clean a fish is you start at the bottom and you, you cut up to the rib cage and then you pull all the organs out um and in many cases most people today most modern hunters would discard most most of those organs and remember that that single cut says a lot because it was about just getting organs out but that's not what happened in Mongolia. In Mongolia, what they did was they cut around the rib cage, and what they removed was like a shield. It, it would almost look like more like an autopsy, right? They took this huge piece of the rib cage and, and, and uh, belly meat out, and you had complete access to all of the organs. So they took, they took that aside. They put a tarp underneath uh, kind of the, the bottom legs of the animal, clean tarp. And they grabbed the esophagus, kind of like I did with that duck. They grabbed that esophagus all the way up and cut it, pulled all the organs out at one time onto this tarp incredibly carefully. And, and the way I describe it in the book, it's like these three men, who I'm sure knew each other well and have done this before, but were operating like surgeons. Like they, they were in concert with one another. Every cut was incredibly deliberate. It was actually beautiful to watch. They pulled it all out onto the tarp. The only thing they didn't eat really was for the, uh, was um, the gallbladder, and believe it or not, in this case, the spleen. Most most native groups that I've seen do eat the spleen. These this group didn't. They took the spleen and the gallbladder, fed it to the dog. The wife comes over, takes all the intestines with an ear to ear grin, so happy. There's a particular place in their in their yard. Um, where remember it's 40 degrees below zero. There's this there's this frozen mound of intestinal contents that's growing. She cleans all the intestines out over there, and they make this. They use it. They eat the intestines, but also they stuff them with with meat, and make a sausage-like thing. So she cleaned all those out. They took all the they took all the organs out. They cleaned the stomach out because they make a fermented yak butter in, and they cure it in the stomach. All these organs were perfectly manicured and cared for. And then as soon as that was done, they literally dropped their knives. And these three men picked up saws and axes, and they took the rest of that animal apart with axes. It looked like a horror movie. And what they were creating was similar to what I had in that first restaurant, those chunks that all, every chunk had some meat and fat and gristle and bone on it. And the way they approached that animal, the way that uh, the chefs in that restaurant approached that animal, and these butchers out on the, out on the Mongolian steppe, was exactly the way that I view our approach to animals through time in the past. You know, we go, we get meat, we're happy about the meat, and that's fantastic. But what we cherish, what we deal with on a regular basis, which we go out of our way to access as much as possible and celebrate, are the blood, the fat, and the organs. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, we saw the same thing when we were in Tanzania with the Hadza. One day, um, they hadn't had a successful hunt, and um, the guides bought them a goat. And when they were butchering the goat, it was different than anything I'd ever seen. They they killed the goat by, like, suffocating it, and then they cut its neck, and they drained all the blood, which they saved every bit of the blood that they could, and they made a stew out of the blood and all the organs. Mm. And I've talked about this in the past. When that liver came out of that goat, uh, one guy had it in two hands, and he placed it very gingerly on a rock. It was clearly very highly treasured. Um, 
the, the really the, the most highly treasured organ and all the other organs went into a pot with the blood and they made this like blood and organ stew, which was actually pretty good. Um, when, when they gave it to me, I was surprised because blood is kind of salty. I think that they, yeah. you know, blood, they didn't even have to use salt in it. And it kind of tasted like I had salted it in my kitchen. So they boiled it all with the blood. I love that all these cultures save the blood. It's like one of the things that gets neglected so often, um, is this, you think of blood as an organ and it's always getting drunk, whether it's with the Maasai drinking blood and, and milk or the Samburu drinking blood and milk or the Hadza drinking just straight blood and the organs. I thought that was so cool that the, the, the Mongols, these Mongolian sheep herders or these, these herders, these yak herders were doing the same thing. And you see this pattern over and over and over that the organs are treasured and then they, they will eat the meat, but they really are excited about the organs and, and they do then break the bones open to eat the bone marrow. And when, when I went hunting with the Hadza, we killed a baboon and the next day we ate the brain, which all my friends were concerned I was going to get prion disease, which I seem to have, I seem to have escaped it at this point. <laughs> Congratulations. There, there are, yeah. Yeah. There are not any prion diseases that I'm aware of, um, that, that have ever jumped or, uh, have ever moved from, uh, baboons to humans or any, any, um, any primates for that matter. I did a lot of research about it because when I told my friends, they were like, oh, you're going to get sick. Anyway, so that is a pattern that we see over and over that organs, blood, and fat are, are the most highly treasured parts of the animal. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you, uh, what you saw when you were with the Samburu? I haven't heard about them in, the, in Kenya. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we went there specifically because we wanted to do work and, and document, but also experience the, the drinking of the blood, just like the Maasai do. The Samburu and the Maasai are very closely related. Um, so this is, this is what happened there. So the Samburu are, like the Maasai, are nomadic pastoralists, which means they tend to animals, but they don't raise these animals for meat, although they will eat them. They raise the animals for milk and blood and they they look at the, they they look at the blood blood just like we look at milk as a renewable resource right and everything that we talked about up up until now right are are people that have killed an animal and harvested the blood but the samburu and the maasai will harvest the blood from a live animal just enough that they need it's kind of like us giving blood at a blood bank and then they re, you know regenerate the blood inside their bodies and then they do it again and again so this is this is how it went down there and we spent days getting to them uh it was several flights and days camping and and, and driving and eventually the last bit of it was through a, a dried riverbed a wadi we came to their village and uh we went in they they took one of their cows and brought them over cow was fine didn't resist at all they put a rope around its neck same same way like when they put a uh, rubber band or a band around our arms giving blood and their um the jugglers got huge you could see it and they walked up i still have the arrow with this little look like a little toy bow and arrow and the arrow tip was a was a piece of metal that um was made so that it would only go in about a quarter inch it had a bunch of, of twine wrapped around it so it stopped after it went in for about a quarter inch so they walked up to this to, to the cow um they shot this little tiny arrow. It went in and bounced out. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a stream of blood coming out of the cow's neck. And they collected it in a gourd. Uh, they collected about a liter. And as soon as they had what they needed, they took the, the rope off the neck, uh, threw a little bit of dirt into the wound, and the cow, you know, ambled off. And they'll, another week or two, they'll go back to the same cow. And they took this gourd, and they set it on the ground and took a stick, and they stirred it. Um, and what they did was they allowed it to coagulate, and they, it, the stuff that coagulated around the stick, they gave fed to the dog. They went to another cow, milked it, raw milk, uh, equal equal parts, back and forth, back and forth, the blood and raw milk. It was all mixed together, and we drank it. 
and it tasted like an irony, salty chocolate milkshake. And <laughs> it was, and I, and I know it, it's, it may sound like I'm overstating this or I'm trying to prove a point on purpose, but I'm telling you exactly how it felt. I could feel myself being nourished. I mean, you knew, you knew you were getting something good when you were drinking this, you felt satiated and full. It was amazing. Um, my whole family, except my youngest daughter had it. She was, she was very young at the time. And she actually thought, I mean, you can imagine a young child out of context, seeing somebody shoot a bow and arrow and blood squirting out of its neck. She thought they were killing the cow, which obviously they weren't. Um, and then, you know, we drank this. What's fascinating is that that group, the, uh, during the dry season, the, the food for the animals, the, the forage for the animals is so poor. It's so dry and so woody that they have to eat, the animals have to eat massive quantities of food. And in order to do that, they need to just roam. So for during the dry season, for months on end, the men and the boys leave and just let the animals go and follow them. And they follow them wherever they go. And they're gone from, you know, again, for sometimes almost half a year. When they leave, they carry uh, that little bow and arrow, a gourd, and a spear. And, that, and that's it. They don't even carry something to, 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 to hold water. They eat twice a day, only blood and milk, twice a day. And back at home at the village, the women eat eat that as well. They get extra, um, they get extra blood and milk when they're, um, when they're sick or they're pregnant or they're lactating. But the sole, you know, basis of their diet is blood, fresh blood and raw milk. And I remember when I first saw the three sort of uh, young warriors that, that met us when we, when we got to the village and then coming into the village and seeing, they were the healthiest people. They, they were outwardly looking to me. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, you test them, but looking at them to me, they were the epitome of the human form. They were tall. They were lean. They were muscular. They had broad white smiles full of teeth. Uh, eyes were completely white. I mean, it was, they emanated health. And I remember coming home back here to, to Maryland on the Eastern shore of Maryland and, and, and just thinking about that and all these conversations about, you know, what's a healthy human diet and what are we going to do to the food system to improve the food system and feed this growing plant? All these arguments we, we talk about every day. And the two foods that are the staple of the diet of the people that I think are the healthiest people I've ever seen out of those two foods, one is illegal for me to get. And the other is practically impossible for me to get. We haven't even scratched the surface of what a healthy human diet is. Cause it's not even in most of our, uh, most of our perception of what is possible, but it was amazing. You want to talk a little bit about milk because uh, it's an interesting thing for me personally. I, I wish that I could drink milk, Bill. I've tried, uh, I've tried raw milk. I've tried goat's milk. I've tried A2 milk. And uh, I just, I, my eczema always flares. But I do think there are a lot of people who can consume milk. And I think for those who can, there are a lot of benefits to potentially having dairy in the diet. So let's, let's wrap up yeah. the conversation with a little bit of, con sure. a little bit of discussion of milk and and, and how this can be incorporated into a, a human diet. All right. Well, thank you, because I, I'm, I'm really glad we get to talk about milk. I'm, 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 I'm somewhat passionate about dairy, believe it or not. So I'm glad to have the opportunity. Let, let's start with this. Let's start with talking about what happens when, uh, when we are infants and we drink milk. Um, and it's sort of like, and then we can, from that point, we can talk about what we can do to dairy to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. It's sort of like that duck example with the grains, but instead of looking at another animal, let's look at ourselves when we're infants. Now, we are designed, the, the, actually, the only food I can honestly say that I think humans are designed to eat, and it's only for a short period of our life, 
is milk. I mean, we are mammals. That's how we're defined. We are perfectly, everything works perfect uh, when we drink milk from our mothers at that stage in our life. And so I think it's a, it's great to, to start the conversation by looking at that. When we, as, as human infants are drinking from our mothers, we're getting a milk designed for our consumption. We're getting raw milk that when it leaves the breast is already in the process of fermenting. Okay, so we're drinking it. It's fermenting. It comes into our mouths. As soon as it goes into our bodies, it gets hit with a bunch of different enzymes, including lipase, which helps break down the fat, lactase, which helps break down the sugar, lactose, and depending on the mammal, chymosin or a chymosin-like enzyme, which denatures the protein and uh, coagulates the milk and makes it sort of semi-solid. And the reason that that happens is because when you're an infant and all you're doing is drinking a liquid, you have nothing solid to slow it down in our digestive tract. Um, if we're drinking a liquid and it doesn't slow down, it doesn't have enough time in our stomachs to fully break down properly and doesn't have enough time in our small intestines for those nutrients when they're in the right state to be fully absorbed. So we would become malnourished uh, if it stayed in a liquid form. So what we figured out through evolutionary processes, and this happens for other mammals as well, we drink the milk, it's already fermenting, it's completely raw, teeming with live microorganisms. It comes into our guts, it gets hit with these enzymes, goes into our stomach, becomes a semi-solid, slows it down, continues to ferment in the stomach, and it, and it is in a state that it can mechanically break down as well. It goes into our digestive tract, and uh, the nutrients get absorbed, and it passes through and, and does the rest of the things that the food needs to do. Now, a if a baby, if you're if you're burping a baby on, on, on your shoulder and it spits up on your shoulder and it looks like cottage cheese and it smells like provolone, that's because that's exactly what it is. What that baby, what we did as a baby is we made cheese in our stomachs. That chymosin enzyme or chymosin-like enzyme is what in the cheese-making world we know as, as rennet. And real cheese is fermented. Real fermented dairy products like yogurt and kefir are fermented. So if we take a, and here's the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. When mammals start to get weaned off of solid food, weaned onto solid food and off of milk, they slow down, cease, or um, suppress the uh, the expression of a lot of those or production of a lot of those enzymes. So, in in the case of humans, in the case of mammals in general, we stop producing chymosin or chymosin-like enzymes, um, and especially with uh, lactase we stop we don't need that enzyme any longer so we don't produce that lactase and we can't handle the lactose now in humans it's actually we think most of us look at humans and think of those of us who are lactose intolerant are odd it's not it's not the case it is odd that some of us um uh were a part of uh, uh, several different genetic mutations that allowed us to produce lactase and safely digest lactose as adults only 60% of, I'm sorry, 60% of adult humans are lactose intolerant. That means most of us on the planet are somewhat lactose intolerant. Other animals, same thing. When, when, they, when they stop um, drinking milk, they're no longer creating the lactase, and they have a hard time, obviously, the, the same way as well. So now here we are in modern adult, modern human adult bodies. We, many of us no longer produce the enzyme lactase. We certainly don't produce the chymosin. We're not I would argue, like many people would, we are not biologically designed to consume dairy as adults. And then most of the time, the conversation stops there. But that's not 
where the conversation sh should stop. Because if I'm right in my hypothesis, which I'm convinced I am, because that's what I'm telling you guys, that we're not designed biologically to eat almost every one of the foods that we eat, then there's a deeper level of a conversation we need to engage in. And, th and that is asking the question, not necessarily what we should eat, but how we should be eating. Are there ways to overcome our biological limitations and process that dairy in a way to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. And I do believe that there is. And the way that we do that is by mimicking what we did as human infants. So if we take, and again, you have to start with the right ingredients, right? The right raw materials, high quality raw milk from well cared for animals. If, if we start with that and then at least put it through the fermentation process, we're right there replicating a lot of what we would have been doing as, as, as human infants. But if we take that extra step too and also include that, that chymosin, that rennet, and we make a high-quality cheese, um, and really high-quality cheeses, fermentation is a part of that process as well, then we're talking about a completely different food. I would, first of all, I would never advocate anybody drinking ultra-high temperature pasteurized dairy and drinking it and putting it on their cereal, which should be cereal anyhow, but doing, doing anything with it, that's it. Most of the people around the world I've ever seen don't do that. In fact, the Sambero and the Maasai are oddities that they're not fermenting their milk. They're actually drinking it raw, although they do have some fermented beverages as well, but or fermented dairy. But in that, the, the example I gave, they weren't. But every other traditional um, or ancestral group that I've ever encountered that consumes dairy, they always ferment it first. Kefirs, yogurts, cheeses, those sorts of things. So if we start with um, milk, raw milk from a high-quality, um, well-fed animal, we put it through a fermentation process, and if we also make it into a cheese, it's even better, and then consume it, you're consuming a completely different food than obviously Velveeta or American cheese, but um, you know, drink, it's not like drinking milk from a container or, or anything like that. Now, let me just uh, kind of close this piece out by saying, giving you an example, a real-world example, by understanding that process and, and the cheese-making process that can actually uh, make a huge difference. <clears throat> Several years ago, when I was on sabbatical and writing this book, I, my family and I were traveling around the world doing research, but in most places I ended up speaking at the end of it and, you know, in, in these different locations. And I would always get the same, no matter where in the world I was, I would get the same questions. Now, should we humans be eating bread? Should we be drinking dairy as adults and all that? And then towards the end, a couple people would always say, hey, listen, I get what you're saying about the dairy, but I'm lactose intolerant. I usually do very well on, on aged cheeses or yogurts or kefirs or whatever, but you know, I don't get it with pizza. Like sometimes I'm okay with pizza and sometimes it's a complete disaster. You know, what gives? And I didn't have an answer. I didn't know until I came back home. When we came back home after that year on sabbatical, um, I live in a very rural area, but we, we traveled across the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. We ended up hitting Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And I went over to the cheese section. I love, I, I, like I said, I'm a little passionate about dairy, probably to a, to a fault, but I love making cheese and doing these things. So I went over to look at the cheese section and Trader Joe's and I picked up the mozzarella, turned it over, read the label, and I immediately, immediately knew the answer to their problem, their question. So I, I looked there, I looked there, then I went over to Whole Foods, I looked at their mozzarella cheese. And it's so funny, we talked about this earlier, what are the, what are the filters that we use to try to, you know, we're so disconnected from our food, to try to help ourselves make informed decisions about how to eat? Well, quite often, it's brand, it's price, it's the packaging, right? So if you go to somewhere like Whole Foods and, you know, number one, like they have a great brand or they have a great brand image. Um, it's expensive, right? Um, 
And then you go to their cheese section and they got their cheese mongers there and they got all the cheese spread out real nice. And so if you go there already, you're clicking a lot of the, or checking a lot of those boxes and then you pick up the mozzarella cheese and oh my God, the mozzarella cheese in, in, um, in, <clears throat> in Whole Foods doesn't look like that block of polio from the grocery store at Acme. It's actually a ball and it's sitting in whey and oh my gosh, the label has the colors of the Italian flag on it. There you go. Well, almost all of the mozzarella cheese you'll buy, even at Whole Foods, especially the fresh mozzarella, should not be called cheese. It is not cheese. It is um, it is something completely different, and, and I'll tell you why. Remember what we said about the babies and the human? Well, when you make any of the pasta filata cheeses, like mozzarella or cacciacavallo or provolone or any of those, the first thing you do is you get the milk fermenting. Um, you add some rennet to co- or the chymosin, right, and, you, and to coagulate it, you cut the curds and deal with the curds, and then you let, allow it to ferment to uh, so it goes through a, a, a chemical and physical changes. The milk starts at a pH of about 6.8, and as it ferments, and the lactobacillus bacteria, remember the word lactose even in there, the lactobacillus bacteria eat the sugars, they eat the lactose, and create lactic acid. And as it creates more lactic acid, the pH drops, becomes more acidic. When it gets to a pH of 5.2, you can heat it up, stretch the curds, and make your mozzarella, make your provolone, or make your whatever you're making. Um, But it required that fermentation process, which takes around six to eight hours or so, to get to that point where it produced that that pH of 5.2. And remember, because it's producing that pH of 5.2, it's because a bunch of the lactose was was eaten by the lactobacillus bacteria. That's great. If you have some issues with lactose and eat a cheese made like that, there's some very good chances that you'll be absolutely fine. The problem is there's two ways to reach that pH of 5.2. There's a traditional way, which I just described, or instead of allowing it to ferment, you throw in citric acid or acetic acid or lactic acid, and you can change that pH. Instead of allowing it to go through chemical and physical changes over eight hours, you can change it in literally less than a second. So though if you if you turn over a ball of a, a, a mozzarella cheese and look at the back of it and it says vinegar, acetic acid, lactic acid, citric acid, anything that's acidic on it, turn it around and put it back. It's like drinking a glass of milk. It has the same lactose. It may look like mozzarella cheese. It may smell like mozzarella cheese. It may even taste like mozzarella cheese. It is not mozzarella cheese. And unfortunately, most of your pizza cheeses are made like that, and most of the cheeses you buy at the grocery store are made like that. In fact, if you want to go to the grocery store and buy a mozzarella cheese that is actually made pro- – now, I can't say anything about the origin of the milk, but that has actually gone through the right process to make it as safe and nourishing as possible, the cheap cheese sticks – in the in the um, cheese aisle are actually almost not always but almost always made properly, and the high dollar mozzarella balls at the deli are actually usually not. Wow, have you ever seen a tribe eat colostrum? Not a tribe, but I saw and 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 did it too. Uh, they still eat it in Iceland in, in restaurants. I, a guy I just met the other day, a chef in Iceland, he makes it, and we ate. They they bake it. It's got the same fat and sugar percentages as creme brulee. You literally just have to bake it. You can put it, you can literally put it right into a dish, put it in the oven, pull it out, and it's a custard. Cut it just like custard. Wow. And that's in Iceland, either they do that. Yeah. Yep. I would try that. I would try that. Even though I can't usually tolerate dairy, I would try that. And it's so full of like immunoglobulins and immune factors. It's incredible. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, man, I, I really hope that you and I get to go do some Indiana Jones stuff at some point. Have you ever found any treasure? So that's the last question I have for you. Have you any ever tre- found, like, <laughs> you're an archaeologist, man. Yeah, let, mean, yeah. let me, what's the, I, 
the, the coolest thing I ever – I never found any treasure. I mean, the stuff that I'm looking at is tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years old, so treasure is relative. Um, but uh, the coolest thing I ever found myself, I was uh, excavating on an island in the Delaware River just between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and it was a, a site that was about 2,000 years old. And I was doing my dissertation at the time on um, the use of migratory fish uh, in the Delaware uh, Delaware River there are some very sim similar things that happened there that you see in the Northwest coast with salmon. So they were doing it with things like shad and sturgeon, striped bass and that sort of thing. But anyhow, I'm in the midst of this and I was actually replicating at the time for my dissertation as a part of it, uh, 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 a wooden title fishing weir to help catch, you know, catch these fish. We did a bunch of experiments, but um, I was excavating on an archeological site. It was 2000 year old site. And when I pulled out a slate gorget, so it was a piece of slate that would have two holes on it. So they would wear it like a necklace. And on one side they had etched in, this is 2000 years old, etched the picture of a sturgeon. And on the other side, they had etched the picture of a, a wooden title fishing weir. So that was super cool. Cause I was in the middle of that, but the coolest site, now I didn't find it, um, but the coolest site I've ever been on, and I did some some work on, and I'm going to go back, and, and we're, we're working on some tours to bring people back to, was actually in Kenya at a place called Lewa. Uh, Lewa is the largest white rhino preserve in the world, the family that uh, helps run it. Uh, there's a foundation that runs it now, but there's a it, it's amazing. But they have the largest um, – two million or largest Acheulean hand axe site in the world. And you go to it and it's on the Savannah and you stand in the middle of this site and it's like parking lots of full of hand axes. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of hand axes just laid out like a parking lot. It is as far as you can see. It is unbelievable. So that's the coolest. Why are there so many hand axes? Why are there so many hand axes there? They they, they, they they don't know and, and what's what's uh, really more interesting to me as an archaeologist is not why are there so many hand axes there but where's all the pieces of rock that come off when you make the hand axes like they weren't made there when you make a stone tool and take off all the all the pieces you know for one stone tool you'll have three thousand flakes right so it, just on the ground so if you sat there and made all those hand axes you would imagine just piles and piles of of, of these these stone flakes there's none. So they were actually made somewhere else, and they were there. I don't know why. I really don't know why they're there. Nobody does, and it's it's a, an amazing site. It's interesting, and I, I'd heard that before, that around that time in our history as humans, we started to carry our tools. We started to move them yeah. around. We started to understand the, the, the permanence of tools and the long-term value of tools. And that's that's interesting that they would be moving them to a different place. So. Yeah, moving, they, they could have been trading, they could have been doing, you know, many different things. And I don't, I, I, I really think we need to give our, our ancestors a lot more credit than we do. And, and, you know, if you ever, if you came, we do, we do stone tool uh, classes here as well. If you came and made a stone tool with me and, and you realize how much planning, it, it's like, it's like playing chess. You have to, to plan steps and steps and steps ahead to execute the reduction strategy properly. I mean, it's high cognitive level thinking. I hope we do get to make a tool someday. Maybe we'll even get to eat some horse organs together. That would so, be awesome. That would be cool. Where can people find more of your work? How can they support what you're doing? 
Thank you. So as you mentioned earlier, my book is coming out next month. I'm super excited. It's called Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancestral Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. And uh, we, I, I dive deep into all the things we talked about today. It starts off with a lot of information about our ancestral dietary past. And then every section after that is divided into different sort of groups of food, plants, animals, grains, maize, those dairy. And um, I talk a lot about the prehistory and history of those foods in our diets, um, what we have to look out for, how we can mitigate certain things. And then every chapter ends with a whole host of tips and recipes to take. You know, it's great to talk about these things, but it's, a, it's another thing to take this information and make it useful in your own home so that you can do things to nourish yourself and your family as much as possible. So that's what that book is. I'm super excited about it. It's on all the major outlets. It's on pre-order now. And as far as uh, finding more information out about me, um, my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is at Dr. Bill Schindler, so D-R Bill Schindler. Um, my website is Eat Like human.com and i'm super proud i love to talk about these things i love to teach about these things but my wife and i have found out that you know what we've been able to do for our family in the actual execution of the food is so has been so powerful for us and we just started a company here called the modern stone age kitchen and uh we are actually producing food in line with um, all of the research that we've been doing as a family so you can find out that information at uh modernstoneagekitchen.com and what is it? Is it a restaurant or is it a food distribution company? It's both. It's, it's a food production company and uh, it's a small restaurant. We're expanding, but right now we're, we're producing food. Uh, we're doing theme meals. Education is a huge piece of what we do as well. So we, have, we do a lot of classes and we do a lot of teaching through food, themed meals, those sorts of things. And it's on the eastern shore of Maryland. So if people are yes. listening to this and they live in sort of the northeast, they can reach out, maybe come check it out. Yep, come out anytime. I'd love to give you a tour, show you around, or come take a class or have some of our food. Awesome, awesome. Amazing. Thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, Enjoyed thanks it. for having me. I'm so glad we're finally able to connect. Love what you're doing, and I'd love to support you.